Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. And my guest, Michael Lazar, has a passion for writing his new novel, Eulogy, is about a man who thinks he knows his father. But what if that father kept secrets until the day he died? What would you do? The book is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. And for everything about Michael, go to michaellazar.com. And you can follow him on Facebook and Instagram. And Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ira. Thanks for letting me come on. Absolutely. So you write both fiction and nonfiction. What do you enjoy writing from both? Well, I'm really a fiction person. I've tried to branch out a little bit into nonfiction now and then, but I've been writing fiction since college. And, you know, the story goes back to infancy. <laughs> My mother grew up in the Depression. She she never finished high school, but she had a reverence for great writers. And our house was full of books. There's a story that I don't know if it's true, but there's a story that when I was in the baby carriage, my grandmother asked my mother what she wanted me to be when I grew up. And she said, a writer. <laughs> and my grandmother said, you want him to be a bum? <laughs> so so um, anyway, this, the seed was kind of planted in my head. And when I got to college, I didn't really think about it much. It, it wasn't something that I thought I was going to do. But when I got to college, I loved literature. I became an English major. My first had a great professor my first semester. And then the summer after my freshman year, I, I said, I woke up one day. It was like a religious vocation, you know, like a light from between the clouds came down. I, I said, I know what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to be a writer. I had no evidence that I had any talent for this, really, or <laughs> no reason to believe I could do it. But the funny thing is, you know, I started, I started taking creative writing classes that next semester and I never, I've never wavered or doubted or anything over the years of rejection and finally acceptances since then. It's just a strange thing. I, and I can only attribute it to that sense of growing up in a house full of books and, you know, seeing how much my mother loved them and, and, and loving literature myself too. So you decided to become a bum. <laughs> well, I, you know, decision that you have to make when you get out of school, which is how are you going to earn a living? And a lot of people I knew got jobs in publishing, right, would be writers. And I felt that somehow it, it might just make it impossible for me to have the mental energy after work to keep writing. So I did everything but work in the, the industry of publishing or anything to do with writing. I was a paralegal. I was a I've been all kinds of things, but I've tried not, you know, not to write for a living so that I could keep writing books on the side. So there was that period of time where you were writing and you weren't yet succeeding, which translates into not enough revenue coming in. So I assume your family was patient with your progress because you really had a passion for writing. You know, my, well, my mother died when I was in college, so she didn't see any of this other than my initial like decision, mm -hmm. which I guess that's a nice thing that she saw. My father was very practical and, you know, he, he didn't want to be discouraging, but he couldn't, it was painful to him to see that I was going on a track where financially my life could be very unstable. He really wanted, he, he really wanted me to be an accountant, which if he, you know, just thought for a minute about my skills in math, <laughs> he would have realized. Well, that's a form of fiction writing, isn't it? 
<laughs> uh, you know, he thought he, my brother-in-law was an accountant and, and, you know, he said you can get a good job anywhere. Anyway, there wasn't not a prayer for that to happen. So I, you know, kind of, he watched over the years as I struggled, but I always supported myself. I, you know, did this and that and, you know, had jobs and never, I never went hungry. I just lived very simply. What did you realize you had made it in the sense that you could support yourself for the rest of your life with your writing? Was it a particular book that was published? Was it an article? How was it? When, when did that moment come for you? I, I hate to disillusion you, but I don't, I think there are very few writers, including the ones who come on your show, who actually can support themselves with the books they write. Uh, and I'm not one of those. Uh, no, I've always, I've always had to do stuff. I, you know, I've taught, I've been, I've, I have done some kinds of writing. I've done ghost writing and editing. Right. Well, let me rephrase it, Your Honor. When did you realize that you were semi-successful? Well, you know, to be honest, I still don't feel as successful as I want to be. But I think a lot of people feel that way. I've had many stories published. The, the first time I got a letter in the mail saying yes, after four years of sending out stories and getting only rejections, was probably the most exciting moment of my life. And I screamed. My friend had a couple of friends there who witnessed this. And then many years went by of between that moment and getting my first novel published. That that first story was accepted in fall of 1976. My first novel came out in 1999. So there was a lot of um, I wrote stories in between, and I wrote three novels that were not published. And finally, things started to be accepted. I think seeing seeing books that you've written, you know, with your name on the cover, in print, an object that you can hold in your hand is a really significant moment. So that that it's really important, I think, for every would-be writer to have that moment. I've talked to many writers, and I asked the standard question, which I'm trying to get out of asking, so I'm not going to ask you the question. But you introduced it in a way by the fact that you have a physical object that's there and is permanent and is a sense of, and my regular listeners and viewers are sick of me saying this, it's a sense of immortality because you're, you'll be gone at some point, but the books will still be there. I, I you know, that, I, you know, it, it sounds presumptuous to say it, but I, I feel that, you know, I, I know realistically, unless I become somewhat more famous, there won't be a lot of people checking those books out of the library. <laughs> but I do have that hope still. I still hope that the next thing I do will be, you know, successful enough so people go back and, and look at the previous books. When you decided to write this novel, the current one, which is called Eulogy. Again, it's fiction, not nonfiction. So your passion is more for fiction, although there's one book you wrote of nonfiction, which you can talk about in a little while. But how did you develop the story and what kept you going about the story? What was it about Eulogy and, and the discussion about a, a person not knowing the secrets of the father that intrigued you and, and propelled you forward? Well, I find every time I start a novel, I find that I have one initial concept that I'm working with, and I try to develop that concept, and it, it feels like it's not enough. It feels a little thin, and I wait, and I, I just, I don't try to force it. I wait a little bit until other ideas kind of bubble up, and so this book is actually a combination of two very discrete concepts. One is the idea of an ordinary person doing something kind of heroic at fairly great risk to their own safety or security. And 
that was just inspired by a few incidents, you know, that like there's a famous moment when the guy in the New York City subway system, a man passed out and another a train was coming. Another guy jumped down on the tracks to and covered the first guy. And I mean, which seems like a crazy thing to do because I don't I didn't think there was room under a train for one mm-hmm. person, let alone two. Right. But turns out there is and they were both OK. But that, you know, I think everyone who heard that story wondered you know, what would I do in that situation? And and I think, you know, realistically, very few would, would do what that guy did. But it made me think about writing about that impulse to, to be the ordinary person who does something kind of amazing. The other aspect of it is a son who has a kind of a maybe disappointed attitude towards his father, that his father always seems sort of small and ordinary, but who finds out something that he didn't know. So I combined those two. And the father has this history that you would never have suspected that he did this thing that was fairly brave, ended up going to prison for it unjustly, and kept it a secret from his family, from his kids, because to him, it was a shameful thing. And he didn't want anyone to know about it. Um, And his siblings, the aunts and uncles, you know, honored his wish to not tell the kids so the guy, the protagonist is in his 60s and he's delivering his father's eulogy, telling the father's whole life story, omitting this significant thing that later that night, his stepmother finds a box in the closet with um, all these mementos, including a sealed envelope with clippings about that court case. And she shows it to him. And he, so he discovers this thing. And the rest of the book is him trying to figure out what happened. Why did, why? Could, how is it possible that this kind of ordinary, hardworking, honest, nice guy, popular, friendly could have gone to prison? So that's how, that's how the two fit together. But your question really was, you know, what kind of kept me going? I, it's, you know, I, I find each day when I sit down to work, there's a certain, you know, like, oh, I have to go sit down and do this now. <laughs> I have to concentrate. I'd, I'd right. rather, I'd rather do something else. But once once I'm there and sitting, the process of creating new details and stories and sentences gets me excited and um, and I enjoy it. And sometimes, you know, often it's like really, you know, like pushing a rock up a hill. But sometimes a real flow develops. And I, I remember there was this one moment. It was really kind of an amazing moment where I just writing, 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 and my brain sort of separated and. Part of me went above me and was looking down at me writing, and and that part of me was saying, "Wow, look at him go!" <laughs> you know, <it> was like, <laughs> I just it was just coming out, boom, 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 boom. How much did you rely on your own experience? Because I noticed in the background you have what appears to be medals from your father. Was that part of the inspiration for the novel? Well, the story of the novel is completely fictional. The, my father didn't go to prison, didn't do these things. And, and the personality of the fictional father is very different from mine. The, the, the fictional father is a very gregarious, sociable guy. He has a lot of friends. He's very popular. My father was, could be charming, but he was kind of misanthropic, you know, and, and solitary. He, he didn't like, he hated going out to parties. My mother liked to socialize and he just couldn't stand it. So they're not at all alike. However, my father had a very interesting life and I borrowed many specific details very interesting, odd details from his life, including the fact that he was in World War II in Italy and he was shot 
the in the lung and it took 24 hours for them to find him while he was there bleeding german soldiers came and took his watch and ring and he had to play dead he had to hold his breath for as long as they were there and i i used that story because i felt that for a couple of reasons one i couldn't have made up anything as good as that but i also wanted to memorialize my father you know earlier you talked about how there's a sense of a, a physical book is somehow almost immortal and that felt that was a bit of my motive i wanted to put this story my, some of my father's stories into a form that would last for years and years another odd aspect of my father's life that i used in the book is our family is jewish but my father for a long time made a living making rosaries it started when he was 16 he got a job in this place in downtown manhattan near the woolworth building and they trained him to make rosaries and you know his his family was super poor and they they said you got to get a job and he got this job and mm-hmm. he did it even through my childhood part-time. He would go there like two or three days a week in the mornings. And then at night, he went to work at the post office. So I used those details and those medals. That's like a purple heart and various things mm-hmm. of my father's. Do you think your father would enjoy being part of the novel in an indirect way? I don't know. I don't think I would have written it while he was alive, just because it would feel like an invasion of privacy, I think. I don't know. I really, it's very hard to know what he would have thought of it. In a way, it's an indirect tribute to him. That's why I asked the question. I mean, from my point of view. No, obviously that's true, but he might have felt like, well, this guy is nothing like me, so I'm not sure if it's a tribute. (laughs) (laughs) But on the other hand, I hope that he would have felt like happy that he was able to help me in my career. Now, there are some novels that are 300, 400, 500 pages. Some look at War and Peace, for example. But yours, in this particular one, again, called Eulogy, is not overly large or overly thick or overly big. But how many pages is the book? It's about 140 pages. And, you know, it almost it verges on the length of a novella. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting question, the thing that you're pointing out, because other books I've written have been much longer. I just found when I told the story that the story was over and I thought... <laughs> gee, that's kind of short, but I'm not going to pad it. I'm not going to like throw stuff in to make it longer. Right. It was a natural ending, in other words. Right. Yeah. And, and it's it's fairly dense. I mean, there's a lot in it. I'm surprised sometimes at how much variety there is in that 140 pages. There's a lot of different people and scenes. In fact, the first chapter is so, it's the funeral and the eulogy and at his house, the father's home afterwards and, the, you know, the people coming back to the house. There's so many characters introduced that it's actually, you know, I have to say, you know, I admit it could be a little confusing. Hopefully people get past that. But it's a it's a very slim book. On the other hand, that's a selling point. You know, people are impatient. and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, attention span uh, of people these days. It's, uh, right. it's a little tricky. Do you find that there's a market for fiction and novels in the sense that uh, book clubs will want you to talk to them or... You can have gatherings where people want to hear from you about how you came up with the story and how you wrote the book, etc. That has been the main way that I have publicized the book. I, I've reached out to various book groups through friends and, and libraries and around the country, and I've done it in person and on Zoom. And 
it's actually, it's terrific because it's a very solitary career. You know, I spend most mm -hmm. of most days just sitting in my chair over there um, and, and working on these books. And then to go out in public, it's kind of like, I feel like kind of I'm blinking in the light, you know, coming out from my cave. Right. And, you know, you never know. I, mean, I, I guess, you know, when an author visits a book club, if somebody didn't like the book, they're reluctant to say that, you know, they're not going to. So nobody has actually said they didn't like it. I've had many very enthusiastic responses, which is gratifying. You know, it's, it's a nice thing to hear. Interestingly, people see things that are not what necessarily the main thing I was focused on, but I wouldn't say they were wrong, you know, to find meaning in that. That has happened with all of my books. Readers tend to latch onto something in a book that is significant to them personally, even if it wasn't the author's main intent. Do you find that, well, I guess in a way, you're a combination of your mother and father. You're your father when you're sitting alone at that desk behind you, writing. And then you're socializing, as your mother did, by going out to book clubs and talking with people. What you said happens to be very insightful. Beyond what you were talking about, about the book writing versus book clubs, I take a lot from each of my parents. My, my father was very disciplined. His family background was German Jews. And, and you know, he, he was very, you know, you do everything you have to do. You're on time, blah, blah, all discipline. My mother was very dreamy and idealistic and un very unpragmatic. And that's a strange combination, but it's kind of worked for me. I mean, the, the creative side is my mother and the sitting down and doing the work is my father. Right. But do you ever get when you're writing and you get lost in the writing process, do you feel lonely at times or are you so into it that that doesn't become an issue? That's interesting. I, I never thought of it. The answer is I've, I've never felt lonely while I was working. I have felt lonely at other times, but, right. but not while writing that was you know that's it, it's sometimes i'm distracted and i kind of have a hard time concentrating but then i sort of like say okay get back to it but no loneliness is only when you wish you had somebody to hang out with you know when you're i'm married now for many years but i remember those years between oh, grad so, school oh so you are lonely then <laughs> what? <laughs> that was a joke <laughs> No, no, edit that out. <laughs> Only See, kidding. By the way, I want to just point out, in your background are everything bagels. Correct. And it wasn't intentional, but the lunch that I just finished was an everything bagel. Oh, excellent. Well, good. And I think, <laughs> isn't it in the novel somewhere too, buried in the uh, story? Oh, you know, I, I think I told you that everything, that bagels appear in my novel, but I, I went to actually check. I wanted to make sure I was telling the truth. Right. And I think that... <laughs> Let me explain. There's the scene after the funeral where people come back to the house and there are platters of food like locks and Bagels. watermelon. <laughs> and then, then there's another scene after the unveiling near the end of the book where people come back to the house again. And I thought bagels were mentioned, but the bagels are only implied. <laughs> ah, well, that's another thing. There's everything bagel and then there's implied bagels. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah, no, that works. Do you set a schedule for yourself on your father's side when you're sitting down to write each day? Do you set aside an hour a day, two hours a day, three hours a day? How does that work for you? I have a, a fairly rigorous schedule. What I, The first hour of every day after breakfast, the first one hour, I force myself to sit in the chair for that one hour. It's hard concentration, and I find that 
it usually, you know, it's hard to keep up the most, the highest level of concentration for longer than that. Then I'll try to, I'll try to break it up with tasks that don't require as much concentration. And I'll try to get three hours in divided of fiction writing divided by chores, exercise, music. And I usually am writing something else too, like an essay or Mm -hmm. something like that. So it's not a solid three hours. It's, it's three hours total, but it's broken up by feeding the cat and uh, making breakfast and making the bed. Yeah. I I have a a good friend who is a, she, she is a long distance runner. I was always a sprinter and that's how we write. I, I can only write in these like concentrated bursts Mm -hmm. she can sit for hours and hours and i don't i don't understand how she can do it but we're very different temperaments well she probably doesn't understand how you do it either (laughs) she probably thinks what's the matter with him he's stopping after an hour (laughs) no i know how that feels because sometimes when i'm writing i will think and i'm usually writing humor so i'm thinking of the funny concepts which i'll write down first and then construct the narrative based on the funny concepts so it's a, it's in a way it's a reverse kind of thing. So I'm always interested how writers pursue their I don't want to use the word process, but how how they write in essence. Are have you ever tried writing standing up as opposed to sitting down? Wouldn't that be in a way different and get you a little bit more exercise? I've heard that that Hemingway did that as a as a way to force himself to be more focused. Like if you're sitting in a chair, you might nod out. And I've thought of doing it, but I I've, I've never tried it. I've never set up a spot where I could do it. I never wanted to. I'm lazy. I like to sit in my chair. (laughs) Because you've been writing so long, meaning so many years, did you start out with a regular, not to age you or anything, but did you start out with a manual typewriter or an IBM Selectric or anything like that? Yeah. I'm trying to think of... I think I had a manual typewriter in college, and I think my my older sister gave me an electric portable... For, as a graduation present, which I then took to grad school. And yeah, so I was using that electric typewriter until about 1984 when word processing came about. I was supporting myself as a temp word processor and I would do, I would do all the typing, sneaking it in while I was at offices <laughs> using their computers. And then eventually I got my own computer and started using that. Do you think computers make it easier for creative people or harder for creative people? Well, I, I find it's a really interesting distinction. There, I will write everything but fiction on a computer. When I'm writing fiction, it, I notice that I type very fast because I did it professionally for a bunch of years. And I notice that the facility of typing fast means it's a little too glib. The product is a little thin. So when I write fiction, I'm always writing on lined paper with a pen. And before I get to the period in the sentence, I've usually changed 10 things in the sentence. There are crossouts, arrows, or whatever. I find it's a very different mechanism of thinking. And I can't really explain it beyond that, but I think you get the idea that, you know, typing is great for memos, emails, and I'll outline things on the computer too. But when it comes to actually writing a sentences for a book. I have to do it longhand. So after you're done writing by hand, though, do you then have someone else turn it into typed pages or or put it into the computer? How does that work? Or do you do it yourself? Because it sounds like an extra work. You're writing by hand and now you're typing it into the computer. 
Um, I do that myself at night when I'm tired and I can't concentrate anymore. Uh, it's a good way to use the time, but it's not, it's not, what would you call it? Mindless labor. I usually edit somewhat what I've written before as I'm typing. So it's useful. Before I let you go, what's your next project beyond, of course, Eulogy, which is your new novel? What's your next project? Well, I'm working on a novel now that is set in the future. It's political. It's sort of imagining. I'm, I'm fairly to the left, and it's imagining a world in which the conservatives have been in power for a while and have gotten achieved many of their goals, but it's focused on four teenagers. It's not a young adult novel, but it's about four kids in high school 20 years from now who are dealing with this world where there are a lot more restrictions and the way they both make their way around those things and get caught in traps that they didn't expect to get caught in. And I should not let you go before you mention your nonfiction book that you just recently may, wrote. May I? This is the advanced copy that happens to be handy. It's called The Word Lover's Lexicon. And this little... The illustrations are vintage engravings. This this is actually an engraving of Kaiser Wilhelm from like <laughs> 1917. But the caption that you can't see says, you would like to know what my helmet is called, yes? <laughs> and on the back, it explains, says, I see you are impressed by my Pickelhaube. And how could it be otherwise? <laughs> because the Pickelhaube is the name for that helmet with the point on right, it. Right, exactly. Try to briefly explain what this is. We have about a minute left. Go ahead. Okay. When I got out of grad school and set out to become a writer, I was reading great books. Um, Joyce, Faulkner, Pynchon, Nabokov, Nabokov, however you say that. And I noticed there were an awful lot of words that I didn't know. And I thought, well, if I want to be a writer, I should know the words. So I started looking them up. I started making lists. And then a few years later, I gathered them and, and organized them by category. And this is it's many years later. I've been gathering these words since 1977. They're quotations from literature and journalism. Some are hundreds of years old. Some are from last year. And it's a fun book. It's a, it's, it's kind of, I had a great time putting it together. And I think it's fun to browse in. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Michael Lazar. He has a passion for writing. His new novel, Eulogy, is about a man who thinks he knows his father. But what if that father kept secrets until the day he died? What would you do? The book is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. For everything about Michael, go to Michael Lazar, L-A-S-E-R, michaellazar.com. And you can follow him on Facebook and Instagram. And Michael, thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much, Tara. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.